Would you turn in your uh, Bibles to Luke chapter 22? We're continuing our studies in Luke. Uh, I'm going to turn you to a couple of passages this morning later on in the sermon, and it's important just that you have your uh, Bible open and uh, that you follow the, the verses through just to see the point that's been made. So Luke chapter 22 and verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were speaking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and brought uh, an opportunity and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. Um, This cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word. History records many infamous names in the world, Adolf Hitler, uh, Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, Colonel Gaddafi, Ben Laden. However, there is no name more notorious and more despised than that of Judas. No one would ever dare call a baby Judas. It's not even a name that you would give to a dog. On one occasion, one of our pastors was doing some door-to-door visitation, and he knocked this particular door, and this Alsatian came binding up uh, the the hallway, snarling and growling, jumping at the door, and the the lady uh, nervously opened the door slightly, trying to restrain the dog, pulling it back by the collar that was burning its teeth and, and growling in a sinister way, and as she pulled the dog back, she said, back, Satan, back. Satan. It was, in a very real sense, a satanic attack. A strange name to give to a dog. 
But there are a few dogs called Satan. But never have I come across a dog called Judas, nor an adult, nor a child. Now, there's nothing wrong with the name itself. It actually means praise uh, Jehovah. But because that name is so associated with one man and his actions, it is passed into the realm of the unacceptable. I always feel sorry for that other disciple that was called Judas, because when John is writing his gospel, he always qualifies his name and said, Judas, not Iscariot. He needs to be identified as the uh, and disassociated uh, from this man and his actions. The 13th century Italian Fort Dante pictures Judas in the lowest of all hells, kept for the worst of sinners, and at the right, of, right at the center of that uh, 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 um, hell is uh, Satan with Judas in his mouth, and Judas is being torn to pieces. And I suppose with a good measure of poetic license, what he is trying to say is that of all the sins ever committed in the world, uh, Judas was guilty of the worst because he betrayed the Son of God into the hands of the enemies of God. And so it's this man, Judas, that we want to consider this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, the privileges that surrounded him. Verse 1 tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. Now, originally, those were two distinct feasts, but because one followed the other very quickly, they blended together in the minds of the Jews. Josephus, the Jewish uh, historian, estimates that the population of Jerusalem swelled to 2.7 million during Passover as all these pilgrims converged on the holy city from all over the known world. Now, he may have been exaggerating a little, but there's no doubt that the city was jam-packed with pilgrims and that accommodation was at a premium. Now, those sheer numbers made it logistically impossible for the chief priests and the scribes to locate and discreetly arrest Jesus. But not only was it uh, difficult to locate him, it was dangerous to locate him. You see then uh, that at the end of verse 2, uh, they were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. They wanted to do this discreetly and quietly because they feared how the general population that had come, that were in Jerusalem and had come to Jerusalem would um, react. You remember a few days before they had uh, greeted Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem on a donkey with palm branches in their hands, shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To arrest him publicly during the day would be too risky. Matthew and Mark tell us that they feared a riot might ensue, uh, so they wanted to do it discreetly. They wanted to do it at night, and they needed to find where he was. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack uh, amidst all these pilgrims that had come. And so they meet together. The other Gospels tell us, and Caiaphas' house and tells us that the elders were there as well. And they, they, they meet together um, to discuss how this is all going to happen. And a knock comes to the door, and there standing in the midst is a man who can lead them to Jesus because he knows his movements, he, he knows where he has been, and he knows where he is going. He knows everything that needs to be known. Here is a man, the very man that can lead them to Jesus 
at night when the city sleeps. Now, notice what Luke says there in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, who was of the number of the twelve. He was of the number of the twelve. Uh, the NIV says he was one of the twelve. Now, that statement is intended by Luke to shock us, to startle us, to surprise us. It is one of the twelve who agrees to betray our Lord. Verse uh, 5 tells us that the conspirators were glad. They were delighted. They were overjoyed at this, uh, this man arriving at their door. They couldn't believe their luck. He was one of the disciples, one of the inner circle, one of the, his close friends, and he offers to hand Jesus to them on a plate, one of the twelve. He wasn't a, one of that number who John tells us uh, that when they understood the implications of Jesus' ministry, they turned back and followed him no longer. No, he wasn't one of them. He wasn't of the, one of the 500 that gathered around Jesus and followed Jesus, uh, declared themselves to be followers of Jesus during his earthly ministry. No, he wasn't one of them. Nor was he even part of the 70 that Jesus had sent out in Luke chapter 10, uh, telling them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He wasn't one of them. He was one of the 12 personally selected and called by Jesus to be part of that inner core of disciples and to be his constant companion sitting under his tutelage for three years. He was one of the 12. He had witnessed extraordinary miracles, the stilling of the storm, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water. He had witnessed the tenderness and compassion of the Lord and healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead. He had listened to our Lord's wonderful, heart-searching, mind-stretching, insightful uh, ministry and heard how He repeatedly silenced His critics with his logic and his wisdom. He was constantly aware of the brilliance of his purity and his holiness. Never could he find anything in our Lord's life to criticize or, or to highlight or to point a finger at. He was commissioned and sent out by Jesus to preach, to cast out demons and perform miracles, all of which he did successfully. Never did any of the disciples suspect that he might be the imposter, that he might be the betrayer. He was one of the twelve. And yet, it is one of the twelve who betrays the Lord Jesus. Never did an unbeliever enjoy the privileges that Judas enjoyed. He was surrounded by light. He lived in the presence of deity. He was, as one commentator says, the man who kissed the gate of heaven and went to hell. And it's those privileges that make his sin all the more serious and all the more sickening. Jesus was betrayed by one of the twelve. What a warning to those who have a profession of faith, who are surrounded by light, but underneath it all are dark in their hearts and strangers to truth. It's possible to be exposed to truth, to know the truth, even as Judas did to preach the truth, and yet be a stranger to truth. Judas stands as a, 
a memorial, as a, as a warning to, to all who follow Christ to uh, do what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter 1, to make our calling and election sure, the privileges that surrounded him. The second thing I want you to notice is the sin that engulfed him. What was it that promoted and motivated Judas to do what he did? Why would he sink to such a level and betray his Lord into the hands of his enemies? Now, down through history, various um, uh, suggestions have been made. Some say he became disappointed with Jesus. Uh, He became a follower of Jesus because he identified him as the Messiah, and as the Messiah, um, the Christ, he was expecting uh, Jesus to throw off the uh, yoke of uh, Roman uh, oppression, uh, reestablish the glories of David's reign, and that he and the rest of the disciples would play key roles in that coming kingdom. But when Jesus started to speak of his death and his departure, he became consumed with frustration and disappointed hopes. Others suggest that he was trying to force our Lord's hand so that he might be arrested and, uh, and would be forced to defend himself, to display his power, his glory, and trample down his enemies. But the evidence in the New Testament attributes a motive that is much more sordid and unprincipled than that. It was money, his love of money. Look at verse 5. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. The authorized version says they covenanted to give him money. The word means to weigh up, to put together, to reach an agreement. In other words, he bargained and bartered over the price. He haggled over the price of the betrayal. Matthew tells us that he went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? He negotiates the price. And again, Matthew tells us he settled on 30 pieces of silver, which was the price that you would pay for an adult slave. And that's the reason this disciple betrayed the Lord of glory. Money, or rather his love of money. He had a covetous heart, and that covetous heart led him to commit one of the greatest sins this world has ever known. There's no other sin in the history of the world that is comparable to this sin than the sin of Adam and Eve. Judas had a weakness for money. He was just plain greedy. Turn with me to John chapter 12 for a moment. John chapter 12 and verse 4. This is the incident where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're they're there. The Lord is resting uh, in in their home, and Mary brings this expensive um, uh, bottle of nard or perfume and uh, breaks it and pours it on the Lord's feet. And we read in verse 4, John chapter 12, verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, that's a remarkable passage, interesting passage of Scripture, because it tells us that Judas 
was the treasurer of the disciples. He was in charge of the money bag. Secondly, it tells us that he used to steal from that money bag. And thirdly, he objected to this uh, lavish act of worship, this, this expensive ointment being given to Jesus when it could have been sold, not for the benefit of the poor, but that it would be put into the common pot and he could help himself uh, to it all the more. He was motivated by mammon. There was nothing he liked better than the feel of a few shekels in his hand. And that love of money led him to commit one of the most hideous sins ever committed in the world. He sold the Lord, betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Covetousness was his besetting sin. Covetousness was the sin that sent him to hell. Do you notice the progression into sin. I think this is, this is interesting. He, he um, was appointed treasurer to the group. I, I suspect that he volunteered for that, or at least he manipulated uh, 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 his way into that particular post. And then he pilfers from the common point. He objects to money being spent lavishly on the worship of Jesus uh, when he knows that the more money that's in the pot, the more he can help himself too. And when he sees rising opposition to Jesus, he betrays the Lord in order to get for himself a little bit of compensation for the last three years, which he considers to be wasted years. It was something as trivial and insignificant as a weakness for money that led him to betray Jesus. Notice verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas. See that? Satan entered into Judas. He had tolerated and toyed with this sin over years. And then Satan fills him and drives him to the full consequences of that sin. Calvin's comment on that expression, Satan entered Judas, is this, very perceptive. Through, though Satan drives us every day to crime and reigns in us, yet he is said to enter the reprobate when he takes possession of all his senses, overthrows the fear of God, extinguishes the light of reason, and destroys the feeling of shame. Satan enticed him, tempted him, seduced him, and now filled him and drove him to the full consequences of that sin that he had tolerated in his life, drove him to the full consequences of the sin, something that he wouldn't have thought of uh, two years, a year, even six months before. The sin that he tolerated reached its fulfillment and filled his heart. His love of money ultimately took him to hell. That sin a sin which some would regard as trivial and insignificant, led him to betray the Lord of glory. Trivial sins often pave the way to serious sins, to greater sins, and to hell itself. You think of lust. You know, it, it starts with um, an interest in soft pornography. and Then it leads to to hard pornography, and then it leads you deeper and deeper into this spiral of increasing wickedness. So then when the opportunity comes from adultery, your defenses are down, and sin has sucked you in. Sin has
taken hold of you. Satan has filled you, and he drives you to the consequences of that sin, covetousness. So people take maybe little things from the office or from their place of employment, insignificant things, but then that drives them to take bigger things and bigger things until the scandal erupts and they're dismissed for fraud or pride or a love of position or uh, an inability to control your temper. Sin is hungry. It consumes you. And then when you give in to sin, uh, Satan then drives you to the full consequences of sin. Little sins can take you to hell. The sin that engulfed him, the privileges that surrounded him, the sin that engulfed him. The third thing I want you to notice is the unbelief uh, that condemned him. It's important for us to understand that Judas was not a true believer in the Lord Jesus. It's not that he lost what he once had, but he never had what he thought he had in the first place. It's not a case of him losing his salvation, but it's a case of him never being saved in the first place. Let me turn you to a couple of references. Turn over uh, with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 64. This is the passage where, that I mentioned earlier where the disciples, some of the disciples, not the twelve, but the, the wider number of disciples, turn back and follow him no longer. And we read in, in verse 64 of John chapter 6, but there are some of you who do not believe. Notice that. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Judas, who would betray him, did not believe. Now, turn over with me to uh, John 13. This is the passage where... Um, you remember Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and uh, in that great act of humility, he um, demonstrates how we are to serve one another, and he, as the Lord of glory, condescends to wash the disciples' feet. But then he turns that act of humility into a lesson on theology. And so he, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, Oh, Lord, you're not, go you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then Peter, jumping in with both feet, says, well, then give me a bath. Wash me all over. And Jesus says, if you've already had a bath, you don't need to um, have a bath all over again. You simply need to have your feet washed. Now, let's pick up our reading. John 13 and verse 10. Jesus said to him, that's Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, notice this, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Do you see that? All the other disciples, they had their bath. They were forgiven. Yes, as they walked through the world and they picked up the dirt of the world, they needed to, to have their feet cleaned, but they didn't need a bath again because the bath already had taken place. They needed continual forgiveness. They needed their feet washed, but Judas didn't have a bath. He did profess to follow Jesus, 
but he wasn't actually a true follower of Jesus. He was a, it was an empty profession. He didn't truly know the Lord. He hadn't really believed in the Lord. He hadn't had his bath. Through his ministry, Jesus had called his listeners to repentance and faith. That's how Mark in Mark chapter 1 sums up the ministry of Jesus, repent and believe. That's, that's what Jesus taught. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's how we're made right with God. That's how we take the bath. That's how we're made acceptable to God. That's how our sins are washed away, by, by believing. But Judas did not believe. He was not clean. He hadn't his bath. He was an unbeliever. And that unbelief characterized his life. He was stubborn in unbelief. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus warns and warns and warns the one who would betray him. And Judas repeatedly and stubbornly refuses to apply those warnings to his own life. Look down to verse uh, 21 of, of the chapter we're looking at in verse, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. The hand of the one who betrays me is on the table. When you compare the gospel accounts, you discover that Judas was actually sat right next to Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And John tells us that Jesus dipped um, a morsel of bread into the, the sauce and actually gave it to Judas. And that was, that was a sign of affection. When uh, I was in Albania, um, one of the treats that they had was that they would give you a plate, some olive oil and balsamic vinegar. You would pour the oil in the vinegar, and you would take a morsel of bread, and you would wipe it round and, and, and mop up the oil and the vinegar, and you would eat it. And that's what's been referred to here, the, the morsel. But the morsel was given to a person of affection. Um, in the book of Ruth, Boaz said to Ruth, "'Come over here and have some bread and dip it in my wine.'" my wine vinegar. Uh, I suppose the closest thing that we have to that, you know, if, if a couple were out for a romantic meal, maybe the first date, and things are going particularly well, and the husband orders, uh, or not the husband because it wouldn't be the first date, the boyfriend orders, uh, say, cheesecake, and she says, is that nice? And he says, do you want to try a bit? And he, he takes a bit on his fork, puts it on his fork, and reaches it to her mouth. It's, a, it's an indication of affection. It's an expression of intimacy, of love. Well, that's what the morsel was. And here Jesus gives the morsel. He gives it to Judas. He's seated next to him. He has the, the seat of honor. His hand is on the table with me, says Jesus. He eats my food. He shares my table. He takes the morsel. But Judas is hard. He is hardened to the warnings. He is hardened to the grace. He is hardened to the love that is shown to him. He is stubbornly unbelieving. In spite of the warning, in spite of the grace, he continues in unbelief. And it is that unbelief 
that ultimately condemns him. You see, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Well, Judas betrayed the Lord. That's right. But Peter denied the Lord, and he denied him in the strongest possible terms. He denied him with oaths and curses. But Peter had a bath, you see. He was he was clean. Now, his feet did get dirty, and they got very dirty in his denial of the Lord. But he, he, he went for fresh forgiveness, and he went for fresh cleansing and was restored. Judas never believed. He never had a bath. He never was washed. And so his sin hardened him to the overtures of grace. Now, let me ask you then this morning, do you believe, really believe, I'm not asking, do you come to church? I'm not asking, have you been baptized? I'm not asking, are you a member of the church? Judas was baptized and a member of the disciples. But do you believe in Jesus? Not, not as the demons, because the demons believe and tremble. They have this intellectual um, belief. They tip their hat to a set of doctrines. They say, well, all those Uh, Those things are true, but do you believe inwardly and savingly? Yes, you sin. But when you sin, are you driven afresh to Jesus? As Richard Sibbs says, one of the Puritans, that, that he is more full of grace than I am full of sin. That you you recognize, yes, you're full of sin, but in him there is this fountain that is open for forgiveness. A refusal to believe, a stubborn refusal to believe is the sin that ultimately takes a person to hell. Maybe like Judas, the Lord is being gracious to you. He's been calling you. He's been demonstrating His love to you. And you're resisting those overtures of grace. You're saying, I will not have this man rule over me. I will never be subject him. That's a serious, serious thing. I plead with you this morning to put down your puny arms of rebellion and give up all uh, attempts at uh, resisting and, and refusing Him, because ultimately those are all futile. And put your trust in Jesus Christ as the only one who can make you clean, who can give you a bath and cleanse you from sin the unbelief that condemned him. It was that stubborn unbelief that ultimately took him to hell. The privileges that surrounded him, the sin that engulfed him, the unbelief that condemned him. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the outcome that awaited him. One of the great tactics of Satan is to blind us to the consequences of our sin. He, he dazzles us with the attractiveness of the sin that we are blind to the consequences of, of the sin. So, so Eve in the garden sees that the fruit is is attractive to the eye, that it's, it's good to eat, that if she eats it, she will be like God. And, and she is seduced by the, the temptation. She gives the fruit to Adam, but she's blind to the consequences where God said, in the day that you eat that fruit, you shall surely die. She forgets about the consequences. David, when he sees Bathsheba bathing uh, on that flat roof, is captivated by her beauty and seeks her out, lies with her, but blinded to the consequences, the personal consequences for himself, the consequences for his family, and the consequences for the nation. Sin makes big promises, but it delivers, in the words of Gatsby's hymn, death, destruction, and despair. 
And you see that in Judas. He is motivated and blinded by the promise of uh, a, a fast buck. He is blinded by the glitz of those 30 pieces of silver. Yet afterwards, he is filled with remorse. He returns the money. He takes his life, and he sinks into hell. To change the order of Gatsby's hymn, despair, death, and then eternal destruction. He thought that this blood money would buy him happiness, security, and comfort. And he leads the guards in the Garden of Gethsemane to Jesus and betrays our Lord with a kiss and then falls into utter despair and goes out and hangs himself. People think that sin will, will bring them happiness, fulfillment, and contentment. But you, you know that's not true. You only have to look at the lives of the rich and famous to know that's not true. They struggle with guilt, depression, heartache, heartbreak, just like the rest of us. And uh, very often they're driven to the verge of despair, and sometimes they step over that verge. But the greatest consequences for Judas was that he was forever lost. Jesus calls him in John 17 a son of perdition, one doomed for destruction. In fact, Jesus declares in Mark 14 that it would be better for him that he, uh, uh, if he had never been born. Look at what Jesus says there in our passage in verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The NIV says decreed, which I think is better. So overarching all of this, Jesus is no helpless victim randomly slaughtered. Overarching all of this and Judas's actions is the sovereignty of God and the purpose of God that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But the Son of Man uh, um, goes out as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And what a woe it was, despair, death, and destruction. Now, I want you to feel the force of that. The man was greatly privileged, he was in the presence of Jesus for three years. He saw his miracles. He heard his teaching. He beheld his perfection. And yet he was forever lost. And Jesus pronounced on him an eternal woe. What a warning that is to us. It's possible to come to the very gate of heaven, kiss it, and sink into hell. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress uh, is, is one of my favorite books, and I, it's not as popular as it once was, but it's the second best-selling book ever in the history of the world. Second best-selling book ever in the history of the world. And so when a Christian reach, reaches the celestial city, ignorance is taken, and he's bound hand and foot and thrown through the door of hell. And that Christian classic ends with these words, the very last sentence before Bunyan wakes from his dream. Then I saw there was a way to hell from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. Remember he had left the city of destruction? But he says there is a way to hell from the very gates of heaven. There is a high way to hell 
from the very gates of heaven. Judas was enormously privileged. He professed to be a follower of Jesus, and yet he was forever lost. His stubborn unbelief condemned him forever. He, he came so close, and he ended up so far. I mentioned one earlier that one commentator says that Judas was the man who kissed the gate of heaven and went to hell. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane how he came up and kissed Jesus in order to identify him, a gift of hypocrisy, a kiss of betrayal, something that was intended to show affection was used to betray the Lord of glory. He kissed Jesus. Remember in John 14, uh, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And Thomas says, Look, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus is the door, that Jesus is the gate to the Father's house, that you must enter and come through him. And here Judas kissed the gate of heaven, kissed Jesus Christ himself, the one who could take him into heaven and went to hell. Psalm 2 and verse 12 tells us to kiss the Son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You need to kiss the Son because he is the gate of heaven. Not as Judas kissed him uh, with, with a kiss of betrayal, but with a kiss of affection, with a, a, a kiss of love, with a, a kiss of faith, with a, a kiss of surrender. You need to believe, repent and believe that he is the only way, the only door into heaven. And he is the only one who can deliver you from hell. Do you believe? I'm not asking, have you professed? I'm asking, at this moment, at this moment, do you believe in Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you serving Jesus? Woe, says Jesus, to the man that betrays me.